This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. South Africa occupies a unique position on a continent that is undergoing a boom. The country is an economic bridge that pairs Western investors with burgeoning business opportunities in sub-Saharan Africa. And it also is a source of ideas for other developing countries eager to learn how a fledgling democracy can work in the wake of a trying past. Knowledge at Wharton spoke with South Africa's ambassador to the United States, Ibrahim Rasul, about the economic strength of the region, its challenges, and the common cause South Africa shares with other countries. We're speaking today with Ibrahim Rasul, who is South Africa's ambassador to the United States. Thank you for joining us today. No, thanks very much. It's a great pleasure. Mr. Rasul has been a member of parliament, a special advisor to the state president of the republic. He's been a premier of the Western Cape province and has served in numerous top cabinet positions, including heading up finance, economic development, health, and welfare. He was also deeply involved in the anti-apartheid movement from the time he was in high school and spent time in prison and under house arrest in connection with those activities. So quite a varied background. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, I want to start our discussion by speaking about the South African economy. Uh, it's performed fairly strongly uh, post-global financial crisis, as has sub-Sahara Africa in general. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about um, why it's done so well and what the outlook is for the next couple of years. Mm. No, I think that um, the South African economy has performed far better than many of the OECD countries. And largely, I think it's because our banking system has been a very robust and strong banking system. It had a strong regulatory environment. It did not lend money, did not have. And so I think that we felt some of the aftershocks from having been fairly integrated into Western economies, but we did not go into free fall. And so our growth rate came down from about 5% on average down to just about 3% and slightly low. It's not where we want to be, but I think that um, where we could have been, um, we are fairly happy that we have settled at about 3% and rebuilding from, from that point. We did have problems with unemployment, especially as Western countries, including American corporations, liquidified their assets in places like South Africa in order to bring that liquid capital home. Um, they laid off some people. So we, we had those aftershocks, but we did not suffer the main recession. Um, it, it sounds as if your economy may have reacted uh, in some ways similar to the way that, let's say, Canada's economy reacted, where, again, the banking system was not involved in as many of, of the kinds of investments as, let's say, the European banks and the American banks were. So they were somewhat isolated. And then there's perhaps another parallel, which is that um, they were then well positioned to benefit from a great demand in commodities, uh, oil, and, and but also minerals and so forth. Could you, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no, I think that um, particularly um, we maintained a flow of exports of in South Africa's case, mineral production, um, agricultural products, and a range of other um, products that we have, like automotive components, um, and fairly sophisticated um, transactional issues that um, South Africa has 
slowly but surely built up since apartheid. And we found ourselves in a space where there was a greater demand for those kind of goods. And um, certainly I think um, that has created a robust underpinning to our economy and we're happy to see that that has endured all the vicissitudes of the post-2008 period. The World Bank um, projections for economic growth for sub-Sahara Africa in general are, are very strong over mm. the next two years, somewhere between five and six and a half percent, I believe, uh, climbing as, as you get towards the end of that two-year period. Uh, for South Africa, it's also pretty strong, uh, I think three and a half to five percent, but slightly down from sub-Sahara as, as a whole, if you, if you take South Africa out of the sub-Saharan growth effort. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa is growing largely, I think, on the back of, of oil and other commodities um, being sold to largely to China, but other parts of Asia, which have, of course, done better through, through the crisis. Uh, do you see South Africa rising up, up to the, the level of growth that the sub-Saharan African region has reached in general? Just a couple of points behind, uh, which might surprise some people, um, but, um, but I think that the country has a lot of plans for attracting foreign direct investment and so forth. Yeah. No, the difference between, say, South Africa and many other countries in sub-Saharan Africa is that we have a far more diversified economy, a far more industrialized economy. We manufacture a lot more things with our raw materials, and that's what we try to get onto a market, and there we're heading into great competition because suddenly excess production in the United States creates a glut. There's a price um, differential that then takes place. And so South Africa has to be at its competitive best with its products onto the global market, whereas um, selling oil to the world economy, selling cash crops to the world economy, selling gas to the world economy can have a massive spike in your growth rates and um, give you a sense of greater GDP. But I think that if we were to choose, South Africa would choose its diversified manufacturing base um, a lot more over just a single product like gold, as we had before relied on that as a main export. We now are fairly happy that we've diversified off that base and are servicing a world economy. The difficulty is that in servicing that world economy with manufactured goods, you run into heavy competitive headwinds from your traditional industrial powers. While, the, while global demand is still at a, at a fairly low ebb, at least. I think that, that for, we, we are seeing that that is probably the crux of the global economic problem. It is that aggregate demand is down. And that is why South Africa's trade and investment strategy is shifting far more towards Africa, because for the whole world, Africa represents a last frontier of a market in which there's a burgeoning middle class, it's requiring um, commodities, it's a consumer, it's a growing consumer market, and so South Africa's um, diversifying its traditional destinations for, for trade into Africa itself. And that's the advice that we're, for example, giving to the United States to get out of a protectionist mindset, to get out of a closed economy mindset, to get out of siege mentality, and to see the burgeoning African market as the salvation even 
or the point at which they can kickstart the U.S. economy back into life. 300 million people requiring both capital goods and white goods. That's where the U.S. should be focusing its attention towards. That's where it should be investing in to develop the productive capacity. That's why it should not even consider um, ending um, the African Growth and Opportunities Act because the more liquidity it creates back in Africa, the more it fuels this middle class's demand for goods. And that's the way we believe um, you overcome the crux of the problem, which is a decline in aggregate demand in the world. For people who aren't paying close attention, they, they might be surprised to learn, for example, that in sub-Saharan Africa, there were 40,000 cell phones sold last year. So talk about a burgeoning middle class. I mean, that's, that, that's a perfect measure right there. I mean, 40,000 cell phones. 40 million, 40 million. <laughs> would be what is sold in a day. Right. That's what <laughs> Sorry, I wanted to say. <laughs> I think 40 million yes. is, is just the power of the technological capability that I think Africa is beginning to harness. Um, you talked about this, this um, competitiveness that, that you're facing, growing competitiveness. Have you struggled? Can you tell me a little bit about what's the recent history of uh, currency uh, differential between, say, the U.S. and, and your currency or, or, or with the euro, for example? I think that we've had a fairly comfortable relationship with the U.S. currency, the dollar rand um, exchange rate, when we were in the order of seven and a half rands to the dollar. The weakening of the dollar has strengthened the rand, and that has increased the competitive headwinds against us because suddenly we're having to export things into the world economy at a stronger rand rate, whereas our competitive advantage was that we were not too strong and not too weak in relation to the dollar. So dollar weakness has been a, 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 a problem for economies like South Africa. I think Australia faces it um, currently. It affects your exports. It affects the cost of your goods and ultimately your competitiveness. But it is not a problem of our making. Right. I mean, Brazil's been very outspoken complaining about that, as some, have some other countries. Um, the you were, as a premier of the Western Cape province, um, as I understand it, um, in large part responsible for luring in some one billion U.S. dollars in foreign direct investment. Uh, what was the strategy you had there that worked so well? Can, uh, is that model, can it be, is it being replicated in South Africa in general? And again, can it be replicated throughout um, sub-Saharan Africa? I think the strategy is very simple. You've got to pick winning sectors in your economy. And then you've got to understand what are the competitive advantages within those sectors that you're selling and who are the buyers. We found, for example, that in agriculture, the buyers were going to be your Arab economies, your Middle Eastern economies, where food security is a major issue. On the other hand, we realized that in the film sector, we were producing films with world-class facilities. In Cape Town, we were producing films 40% cheaper than in a standard Hollywood production. All we needed to do was to persuade a group of actors and producers and filmmakers to take the long haul flight to Cape Town. And once they reached there, they discovered scenery that have never before been seen on film. And so it's really been about using 
winning sectors, identifying competitive advantages, and then having a marketing strategy led by the Premier or the Governor himself in order to lend the credibility of government handholding through the process of investment. And the other one that was also property development, because we realized that property values um, in South Africa, and particularly in Cape Town, yielded 30% returns year on year on your property investment, as opposed to a global average of 6%. Even in a post-recession period, your yields are between 12 and 15%. Now, that's not the story of Cape Town. That's the story of Africa. The average rate of return on investments in Africa is 8%. The global average is 3%, and the U.S. average is 2%. Now, we realize that in the United States, there's a lot of unproductive capital waiting for better days. They're not wanting to put it where the yield is 2% return. There are cultural and other impediments in the U.S. mind that prevents them from crossing the Atlantic pond and finding 8% rates of return. Now, I think that between myself, between my hosts, the Sub-Saharan African Chamber of Commerce, our duty is to build courage because the business case is apparent. We simply have to build courage and hold hands and take U.S. investors over to Africa, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, match partnerships with them so that they share risks and be able to help them identify the right kind of investment. That's the approach that we've taken with public entities like the Export-Import Bank of the United States that is now investing heavily in building 100 um, locomotives for South Africa, in funding a conventional um, power station, energy station, um, with our public utility ESCOM, six billion US dollars going into that. But the result is that, for example, on the rail building, the locomotives, there would have been general electric plants that would have had to close, lay off workers, slow down production. Along comes Africa, puts an order of 100 locomotives. The money is put forward by Exxon Bank. Not only does that money return with interest, it keeps the U.S. industry sticking over. That's the virtuous cycle. That's the logic that we're using. Now, investors, of course, associate higher return with higher risk, uh, which is, makes perfect sense. Um, so what are the myths about risk in investing in South Africa, or let's say Africa, and which challenges or risks are real, and how can they be managed? I think, firstly, you're dealing with fairly relative terms, because we are dealing with fairly good returns in Africa. It's not excessively high. It's just that in the U.S. it's so low. Now, that's the first thing that we've got to change in the perception. The second thing we've got to understand is, and, and you don't have to believe me, you've got to read the McKinsey report. The McKinsey report says whatever risks you have to invest in to overcome in Africa is mitigated within the first year's return. So if you have to put in extra security because you're not feeling safe, if you have to put in extra insurance because you're not clear about it, if you have to put in extra banking um, um, shore-ups because you're, you're uncertain, whatever you've put in, you more than get back in your first year of returns. 
That's the, that's the important thing. But political risk and risks of violence have reduced enormously. If we were having this conversation four years ago, you would have been justified in showing me 16 conflict zones across Africa. You would be hard pressed to find, to fill up the fingers of one hand today. That's because Africa is reaping the dividends of democracy. It's understanding that when you have democracy, the returns financially and economically are enormous. Secondly, in the past three years, you've had about 50 safe elections. We can point to the one in Kenya that went wrong. We can point to the one in the Cote d'Ivoire that went wrong. But the fact is that that was de rigueur four years ago. Today, you're speaking about um, safe elections, presidents retiring people in Ghana. The split in the election was 51-49. The incumbent president who got 49 retired. That's de rigueur. Um, for, 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 for Africa. So I think you, you've got a diminishing political risk. You've got democracy dividends coming up. But most importantly, we are building durable institutions of democracy, the rule of law, and most importantly, financial and economic institutions that I think give predictability to certain situations. And that's the reason that today you've got 20, if not more, over 20 homegrown multinational corporations across Africa with an average each um, of profit of about 3 billion US dollars per annum. Now, that is a partnership. Before, you'd have to come in on your own, take all the risk on the chin. Now you've got at over 20 multinationals with whom you can partner. Share the risk with, share the input costs with. You don't have to do it on your own. And that, I think, is the story of Africa. And it's told by the McKinsey Report, it's told by Stephen Radlett, and it's told by J.P. Morgan and many others. Those corporations that are out there and available for partnerships, many of them are actually right in South Africa. Is that correct? I think, I think that that is probably for the next decade still going to be the case, that they're going to use the strong platform that South Africa offers because it's got an enduring democracy, it's got a justiciable rule of law, it's got a global 24-7 banking system. Um, it's got the infrastructure. It's got the massive infrastructure, it's got the telecommunications connectivity, it's got fiber optic cables running from both sides of the country um, across Africa and the world. And so many countries will, uh, many companies will locate um, the head offices in South Africa to take advantage of it and then from there springboard into sub-Saharan Africa. So that's, uh, th that's a, a good argument for attracting investment. There's, um, we're all familiar with the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, the fast-growing large emerging market countries. There's a new group behind them sometimes called the Sovets, and um, of which South Africa is one. And that includes Colombia, Indonesia, Vietnam, Egypt, Turkey, and, and South Africa. All very different, different regions of the world and so forth, um, considered up-and-comers. There's others. This is, this is one grouping. How would you say South Africa is different from those, and, and what advantages might South Africa offer over, say, Indonesia? I think it surprised many that South Africa took up membership in BRICS. 
because we didn't share India, China, Brazil's GDP and growth rates um, of that kind. But the emerging economies in BRICS understood that if they wanted to make any headway in the world, they needed a strong, reliable African partner. So notwithstanding the differential in GDP growth, South Africa became a member of, of BRICS. With Kavets, we are probably in GDP levels um, far more on par with other countries in that emerging economies, um, not very extreme um, Gini coefficients between us, fairly average uh, per capita income. We share that. We're trying to make transitions from agrarian economy to industrial economies, from extractive economies to, 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 to knowledge-based economies. That's what I think we have um, in common with us. I also think that countries in Kuwait um, fulfill very strategic geopolitical roles, like Turkey, for example, as a bridge between Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. South Africa plays much the same kind of role as a fulcrum um, for sub-Saharan um, Africa. Indonesia plays that in Southeast Asia and so forth. So I think that there are ways in which we have far more similarities um, in mind. And what I think we need is really to aggregate, because in the global world that we're living in, national economies mean nothing. You've got to find partners um, that share basic characteristics with you if you are going to be able to turn your sails to take the best advantage of global opportunities and ward off the worst aspects of globalization um, in the world today. There's also many cultural um, benefits that come from being in Kavets. I think if you look at Turkey, Indonesia, South Africa, struggling with how do you manage democracy that has to also deal with legacies in Turkey of heavy secularism, if not secular fundamentalism. Um, Indonesia, history of coups and bloody. South Africa, it's history of apartheid. So you're also dealing not only with economic globalization, you're dealing with the globalization of identity as well, and identity politics. And in the US, we should know what the dangers are of ignoring identity politics, because you can get mired in wars that you think you can get out of very quickly if you don't understand fundamentally that globalization is a double-edged sword. And I think that that's really why we find ourselves in those kind of partnerships. There are some challenges that um, that outsiders considering investments would look at. You've had a, a series of difficult strikes and, and, and labor issues. Um, so, how would you how would you address you know that issue? Someone's thinking of investing and they say, "Oh, but you have this lab labor strife," or or maybe there's some other challenges that stand out that they would need to be mollified about. What what would you tell them on that issue? And what other issues would you think? Um, would be important for them to understand specifically? Yeah. I think that if you take our labor relations, for example, and that is why I think with Kvets, we are far more in common because we are all emerging democracies. Unlike, say, for example, in, in, in BRICS, where not all of us share some democratic underpinnings. Oh, it's a purely economic arrangement. But in Kvets, we're trying to deal with the push and pull of democracy. You want to have productive economic growth, 
but you also need healthy mechanisms of sharing the country's resources in order not to have tensions between competing groups that create a new form of instability within emerging democracies. And so you may not face the coups that you used to face before. You may not face the civil wars that you used to face before, but social disquiet and social inequality becomes the biggest danger that the Kvetz countries would really have to put their minds together on how to manage it. What we would un want to understand is that it's being institutionalized. In South Africa, you've got a bargaining season. We know it opens in June and it closes by, by August. That's when all the unions line up to negotiate the next increases. And it has its sound and fury, but at the end of the day, it's all institutionalized. You can manage it. And the ability to manage and to build in the tensions in society in a constructive way is probably one of the biggest lessons that I think those emerging democracies will teach, even the established ones, because it will find antisocial forms in your, in, your, in your established democracies like Britain. Suddenly, out of the blue, you have these riots, and the British government is taken by surprise because it has taken for granted many aspects of its democracy and has not kept its finger on the pulse of social inequality growing and identity inequality growing within British societies. So they will now have to find ways to institutionalize it rather than be caught by surprise. And I think that this is what Africa is trying to do in much the same way that we've tried to solve the Kenya problem. How do you deal with competing elect electoral claims? Um, and, and, and I think that the delicious problems of North Africa and the Middle East, where people want democracy, are shunning um, the undesirable elements of fundamentalism, but also are saying that the current regimes are unsustainable. I think it's how we respond to these tensions and how do we institutionalize them but give them vent. Oh, interesting. Um, could you also explain how the, uh, the broad-based black economic empowerment effort is progressing? You know, you can discuss economic empowerment or empowerment in very technical terms, in legal terms, or in moral terms. I'd want to put it a lot more scientifically. It's like osmosis, where you have to have a movement of matter from areas of high concentration to areas of low concentration until the organism is in equilibrium. The objective is to find equilibrium in your society. You cannot sustain in South Africa high concentration of wealth in a minority that is color-coded and high concentrations of poverty in a majority that is color-coded. You've got to create active mechanisms for osmosis to take place in order to build in equilibrium into South African society. Now, if we understand that, then everything else is a matter of methodology. And black economic empowerment is simply a matter of saying, how do we take mining and ward off the clamor for nationalization by getting greater ownership transferred to black people. And when we speak about greater ownership, we're not speaking about 50%. We're not speaking about 100%. We're speaking about 26%. When we speak about management, we speak about 26%. When we speak about employment equity, 
We're speaking about using national demographics. And so the point that I'm making is that these are mechanisms to create the flow of osmosis in order to bring equilibrium. Now, we understand, therefore, that we can't make our problem the U.S. company's problem. And so we create the exceptions to the rule that your partners who are South African would have to comply with that. But we can't simply say, let's put a break on, for example, inward investment to South Africa by making onerous, osmotic processes their problem as well. And I think that we're, we're, we're getting the debate out of ideological terrain and into practical terrain. And even investors who come there from countries like the United States later understand that the stability of the company depends on how you spread ownership and how you create um, participation in the structures of that company. Thank you. Um, one last question. Uh, you, your country hosted the World Cup in 2010. Uh, what were the permanent benefits of that and uh, what were some of the lessons you learned? You know, sometimes when you have a set of competing priorities, school system that isn't optimum, a health system that is screaming, a road system that is creaking, um, public servants that want more pay, infrastructure that is not on par, railway systems that require ports that need to be built and so forth, you actually need a focus. And for South Africa, more than the romance of World Cup 2010 was that it provided us with a focus and with a guillotine. It had to happen by 2010. And so everyone looks at the stadiums. And the truth of the matter is only two new stadiums were built. The other eight were upgraded. But most importantly, it said that if you wanted a rapid rail system, you've got to get it done by 2010. And today, we have a rapid rail system in the most populous part of South Africa. If you wanted to redo your road systems and get them wider, get them retard, and get them longer and connected to the rest of Africa, 2010 was the deadline. If you wanted your airports modernized, 2010 was the deadline, and all our airports are modernized today, and they look better than Dallas International. Um, and if you wanted your ports done in order to bring in passenger liners, which would act as floating hotels, 2010 was the deadline. If you wanted to bring your hotel infrastructure from the 20th century into the 21st century, 2010 was the deadline. We've achieved all of that. Those are permanent gains. But most importantly, on a continent which to the rest of the world, they can't distinguish Zimbabwe from South Africa, Somalia from Congo, Kenya from Egypt. It was a ge geography lesson. It was a mind-blowing experience. The most visitors who came there were citizens of the United States. They spent the most, they stayed the longest, and they enjoyed themselves thoroughly. They came with a low threshold, how to beat off people who will mug you, how to ward off elephants in the road, etc. They came with all of those misconceptions in their head. They had the most wonderful experience. They're not even the world's uh, biggest soccer fans. They're not, but their team did well. We were torn in South Africa when they played Ghana in the knockout rounds. 
because our instinct was that an African team needed to go ahead. So it was Bagana, Bagana versus Obama, Obama. And um, it was such a pity when the U.S. were eliminated because then the visa indicators of spend in the country began to drop. <laughs> so um, the romance of an African team going forward versus the money spent by the U.S. F fans was a tremendous one. But I think it was a mind-opening experience for people. Thank you very much for joining us today. No, thanks very much to you. very much. Great and discussion. Thanks to Sub-Saharan Africa Chamber for arranging this. This is great. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.